also has a way of using that to get to know people very well. Uh, Hosea chapter 12, and we'll look at one verse here. It says, I have also spoken by the prophets. Verse 10, if I didn't mention. Hosea 12, verse 10. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Now this is God talking, and he is describing how he has written the Bible. And something that comes to my mind when I read this, he says a few things about how he speaks to people. He talks in visions through the prophets. He uses similitudes, and we did a couple Bible studies on that once. Well, that word similitude, it's basically the best way to understand that it's a way of painting pictures. It uses figures of speech, and that word has a connotation to me that when God uses a vision, when He uses a, an image, He'll use the same exact idea throughout the entirety of Scripture. For instance, it would be really good if we would just take one Bible study and spend the entire hour Go through a concordance and just look at the word rock. Where Jacob put his head on a rock and Moses hit a rock and water came out. David takes a rock, he throws it at Goliath. All of these things, they're all the same picture. When you get to the New Testament, of course, Jesus says, I am that rock, capital R. Same thing it says in Deuteronomy about God. And the only reason we point that out is God is very consistent throughout the whole Bible. And because of that, if you understand the beginning or midway through it, you carry that knowledge that you gain all the way through when you get to the end of the Bible. See, I have a theory that the reason people don't read the Bible, there's an explanation that, yes, it kind of points out that we're flawed people and we're not really fond as humans of reading about our own sin. And there's definitely some truth in that. My biggest explanation is people don't understand it. People don't understand why they're sacrificing animals. They don't understand why they march around city seven times. These things get to be, it's out of their vision. It's out of their daily walk. We don't see these things, do these things in our 21st century American life. And because of that, they don't understand the Bible. And as soon as you don't understand, if there's confusion, immediate boredom. But this idea that God uses similitudes, and if he's consistent all the way through, the Bible comes alive when you keep in mind the things that you have learned and apply it everywhere else. You see, we have this, we fall prey to this idea that if we read a story in, say, Genesis, and you two weeks later go 1,400 pages forward in your Bible and you read another story, our natural inclination is not to think they're related. I mean, they're separated by 1,400 pages maybe, maybe 4,000 years. Our natural inclination is just to assume God talked about something back then and he's talking about something different here. But God didn't write the Bible that way. He's outside of time. We're going to look at some examples to try to kind of pull this together and cement this idea that when you hear a phrase, a word, a word picture, God is talking about the same thing from the very beginning as he is all the way through. Now to do this, I'm hoping not to cause confusion when we're trying to dispel it, because we're not going to look at just one issue. We're, we're, we're going to jump around to several different ones. John chapter 8. Go to the Gospel of John. And let's dive right in. We, got, we have a lot to cover. John chapter 8 is a discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees. And they're going at it. They are 
throwing some insults back and forth at each other. At some point in this, they're questioning where Jesus came from because, as we all know, and they probably knew a portion of this, but they used it against him, that he, his father was not his biological father, the way we use that term. And he had, a, I'm sure they used some names toward him. And Jesus starts to tell them that uh, you guys claim Abraham as your father, but I knew Abraham. And this is where the discussion gets, it gets raised up. And you'll see at the end here, the Pharisees always give us a clue of when Jesus hits a nerve, of when something very important is being talked about because they go nuts. We as Americans, we, we, don't, we don't understand the Hebrew life, the idioms, the figures of speech they use. Anytime you see the Pharisees pick up a rock and start to throw it, you know that something major has just been brought up. John chapter 8, and look at verse 53. They asked him, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets which are dead, whom, thou, whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him, and if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. There's a couple of tenses of verbs right there in verse 56. Abraham, past tense, rejoiced. See, Jesus is not saying that he's in heaven and he's looking down and he's rejoicing because I'm here sparring with you Pharisees. He didn't say that. Past tense. That means when Abraham was alive, he rejoiced. For what reason? To see. That's a current in his while he was alive, Abraham saw Jesus' day. Now, this is why I opened up talking about we read the Bible. Americans read the Bible sometimes. It's boring. They don't understand it. And it just confuses them. Jesus is literally saying here that Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus, he saw who he was. He saw his day. Somehow, somewhere he saw a vision of what Jesus would do the events around his life, and Jesus goes farther. He says, he rejoiced. He saw it and was glad. Now we all, you, you may have something running through your head. I kind of know where what Jesus is talking about. Let's go to Genesis 22 and spend just a couple minutes there. Genesis 22 is one of the biggest picture, word pictures in our Bible because it's a condensed version of the entire Bible. It's a picture of a devoted father taking his child to go sacrifice on a mountain. You remember this. God asked Abraham to do this. He asks Abraham, take Isaac, go up to this mountain that I'll show you, and I want you to sacrifice him. And we've spent several Bible studies throughout our years because there's so much to pull out of this. This whole picture of chapter 22 is the Bible of God sacrificing his own son. And you... Figure that out that the more mature you get as a Christian, you go back and read this. But always remember, this wasn't just a set-aside, isolated story. God had a design in chapter 22 to prepare the whole world, to show the whole world, to link the whole world to what he did in the Old Testament, to what? 
to his son in the New Testament. In Genesis 22, in verse 8, Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. He's responding to a question. Isaac had said, Lord, I, I know we're going up here to sacrifice and you've got a knife and there's a fire, there's wood, but I mean, where's the, the sacrifice? The, the thing that's most important here, the animal that takes our place in sins, that we shed its blood. And Abraham's response is, look at the tense of the verb, my son, God will. He will, in the future, provide. If you pay attention to this, you get a flavor for this. What did Abraham know? We learn in the New Testament when we get to Romans and Galatians, we knew something about what was going on in Abraham's mind. It tells us there that Abraham was completely convinced of this fact. God told me that this miracle kid, Isaac, that he was going to be my seed that I would be the father of nations through. Through this kid. The whole world's going to be blessed through him. Now he's telling me, sacrificing. So I don't have a problem, but God has a problem because I know he doesn't lie. And he told me something, that he is going to live to have generations come after him. And he's also telling me to sacrifice him in three days. And the Bible tells us that Abraham was so convinced that God was, knew what he was doing, that he was telling the truth, that he knew what? Even if he went through with it, if the knife came down and went through Isaac, what did Abraham know? That God would raise that kid up. In his mind, he had already received him from the dead, it said. He was 99, Sarah was 90, and he, he was absolutely convinced God would do it again. That they would walk down that mountain, just like he tells the servants, me and Isaac, we're going to go off, sacrifice, and we come back. When we come back, then we'll go home. So Abraham in verse 8, God will provide himself. Now you know the story, they get up there and it does happen. There's a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Moses goes, or Abraham goes over there, takes that and substitutes it for Isaac and sacrifices. And it's a picture of that substitution death, that something substitutes in the sacrifice for us. God doesn't require us to literally shed our blood for our sins. Thank goodness. Now, after all that, and the miracle happens, and the angel stops his hand, he turns aside, he sees the lamb, or the ram. Look at verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it, what tense? It shall be seen. Abraham is saying about the place that he's standing on in this mountain, in the Mount of the Lord, it will, in the future, it's going to be seen. What's going to be seen? The fact, the same picture that he himself is acting out. You see, I've come to a conclusion. I think Abraham knew, by the time it's over, he knew he was acting out prophecy. He even says it. That's why he names the place Jehovah Jireh. God will provide right here in this mountain. He'll provide himself a lamb. So you get to the, let's go back to the New Testament, John chapter 8. When Jesus says, Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day. I think we've got a little more insight now that somewhere up on that mountain, our Father God showed Abraham something. He gave him a vision of the Father of the universe sacrificing his only son on that same spot. 
Now, if nothing else, what we've just done so far in the first 10, 12 minutes, the linkage, even in the eyes of Jesus, between what? The New Testament and the Old. There is no separation. Don't fall into this trap of, well, as New Testament, quote, Christians, we don't really have to worry about the Old. Well, if you use the word worry, maybe not. But if you want to understand the New Testament, yes. If we want to understand what's in the New Testament, you have to know what's in the Old. Have to. Next verse. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, I've used the, I've pointed out and tried to emphasize the tense of verbs, and in here, it's going to lead you to a conclusion I'm not after. When Jesus says that before Abraham even existed, before Abraham, who was 2,000 years before this, before Abraham was, I am. Here's what we as American Christians do. We think Jesus is just trying to tell us that he's always present tense. That he's always with us. And it gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling. Well, the, all that's true. He is present tense. He was before, he is currently, and he will be forever. He is eternal. That's what John 1.1 1, 1 is all about. That's not what he's saying here. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. And when he says the words, before Abraham ever existed, I am. What do they do? The next verse, 59. Then they took up stones to cast at him. They're going to they're kill him right there. Now, some verses before this, he had called them children of the devil. They didn't pick up stones. They called back at him. They probably used the B word, called him a bastard child possibly. It's going back and forth. This is at the end of the chapter. And only when he finally says, before Abraham ever was, I am, do they, they finally get so mad they are going to kill him right there. Why? Exactly right. Exodus chapter 3. Let's turn there. Exodus chapter 3. You try a rhetorical question and somebody knows the answer. Dang it. Yes, that's exactly right. Jesus was referring their minds back to an event. A very important event. When Moses, he's murdered somebody in Egypt and he flees for his life. He's been raised in the palace and now he's gone. He's out in the desert. He's living there. He doesn't have this glorious palace life anymore. And one day, while he's there, this bush starts burning. He turns aside, looks at it, and out of the bush comes a voice, for goodness sake. And he starts talking to him. And it is here where God talks to Moses and says, I'm sending you back. You are going to go back there and deliver my people. Just as friend said here, he asked, how, how am I supposed to go back and tell them? They, they're not going to follow me. Well, who do I tell them sent me? And in verse 14, God said unto Moses, Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now, let your minds go back to John chapter 8, verse 58. And Jesus says, Before Abraham ever was even people, I, capital M, he was telling them that who did Moses talk to in the bush? 
Now, right there, you really should. We're Americans, we live in a culture, even in our churches, that are getting more and more this separation between Old Testament and New Testament. What I mean by that is the thought of, uh, I had an occasion to be at a funeral this last week, and it was the pastor mentioned during the funeral, he was describing what their church believed. And he was saying, and this person that they were honoring was a God-fearing person, and he was trying to, to let people know what she believed, and he said she believed the same thing that we do. She believed in God, and he went to define that. And he said, he defined God as, as seen in Jesus in the Gospels of the New Testament. Now it's true. Absolutely, we believe what Jesus said, did, in the New Testament. But my question is this. Why do you have to define just that part of it? Why differentiate your idea of God as only starting Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? If you do that, you don't even know who Jesus is or why he came. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they're wanting to know who he is, what does he tell them? He's pointing out. You say, I'm not 50 years old. Moses or Abraham was 2,000 years ago, and I'm telling you that before Abraham was, I am. Jesus used the phrase, I am, because his hearers knew exactly what he was referring to. That's why they picked up stones to throw at him. Where did these Pharisees get their beginning? They were law people. And Moses, up on a mountain, talking to the burning bush, that same voice would be giving him his law that he would bring down in those stone tablets sometime later. And here Jesus is telling them what? I was that voice. That, that's my problem today. If, if people want to say that, well, we're just, if we're going to know God, we just start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. False. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus pointed everybody back to what? He always pointed back to the Old Testament. And he pointed back to these major events. Abraham sacrificing his son on that mountain, a picture of himself. He said, he saw my day. He, how could Abraham see something that hadn't even taken place yet? See, John 1.1, 1, 1, God was in the beginning. The word, he was, the word was, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the Word was God. He was that Word. It goes on to say that that Word put on flesh. We're going to get to that part. I, what, the reason we're going over this, and we've done these stories before, is to just show this idea, this huge chasm of 2,000 years of Jesus' time, and then going back in time to Moses or Abraham, and Jesus keeps telling everybody, that was me talking in the bush, the burning bush. When Daniel... In the book of Daniel, and those three Hebrew children are in the fire, they, those people outside look in and said, they say there's a fourth guy and he looks like the Son of God. Even those people had an idea that I think he's in our Old Testament. Here's the deal. He didn't put on his flesh. He wasn't born of a woman just yet in the Old Testament. But he existed. Jumped ahead of myself a little bit. Let's do this. Another idea, uh, John chapter 3, since we're in the book of John, John 3, John chapter 3, very, the most well-known part of the Bible to people who don't know anything about the Bible. John chapter 3, and right 
before you get to verse 16 is verse 14. And it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then he goes on to describe how you can be saved. That when I'm lifted up in the air, whoever believes on me, he should never perish, but he'll have everlasting life. But here's the interesting part. What is Jesus pointing to? He's describing salvation. And he uses an image, an image of, as he says, Moses, who's a long time ago. I mean a long time ago. Even in Jesus' day. Moses, it's in Numbers chapter, I'm not sure. It's in the book of Numbers. There's a plague that breaks out among the people. And God gives Moses a very, very strange command. He said, go get a serpent and fashion this thing, a brass serpent up on a pole and raise it up. And all the people, whoever, they, whoever looks at it, they'll be healed of these bites this plague that is breaking out among the people. And it was true. They did it. They put that thing up there. The people looked at it. And that's a neat story. The reason I'm pointing it out is Jesus himself talks about Moses lifting this thing up. Now, here's the point. From the time that Moses puts that pole in the air, there is nothing in our Bible. There is zero. There's not one verse that explains why in the world would God ask Moses to put a serpent on a pole that is strange. I mean, maybe a dove or a lamb, a fish, something that would someday point to this thing we call Jesus. Why in the world would he put a serpent on there? There's not one verse that explains any of it. There's not even a verse that talks about it. Until you get to John chapter 3. The whole the reason going through this, does God care about the Old Testament. I mean, to him, there's no difference. He is, Jesus is using what happened back there to show who he himself is. Just like those people, they looked at it, he was raised off the earth on a cross, and it saved those people. If we're going to only look Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all these things so far that we read, we've got to cut it out. Even the words of Jesus, he keeps talking about these times. And I'll always remember the day Pastor taught me this. It never had never occurred to me. <laughs> There's so many people that are now they're literally ashamed or embarrassed of the some of these stories. I mean, come on, you really believe Jonah got swallowed by a fish? Swallowed by a fish. We don't want to talk about that. Let's just talk about loving our neighbor and being nice to people and someday going to heaven. Let's don't be embarrassed about some guy getting swallowed by a fish. Let's just follow Jesus. Breaks. Never forget, sitting probably right about there, pastors pointing out, I think Jesus even told people, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so shall I be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. If, you're, if everybody says we want to follow Jesus, well then let's follow him all the way back to Jonah and back to Moses and back to Abraham and back to Adam and Eve. Because that is our our God is not different back then. See that that's really where all this leads. The idea that we can separate it. Well, what you end up doing is you separate most of the character of God. That He's somehow different in the New Testament, and He's not. His own words. Let's look at. Let's go to the book of Ruth. Switch gears a little bit here. The book of Ruth. 
Joshua, Judges, then Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. This, this, is this not why Bible studies are so important that we need to know what Genesis 22 is about? That, you know, all everything, the details of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. We need to know the details of Moses. If we don't know those Bible stories, when we see them in the New Testament, we, we, we don't even, nothing, no, no image is conjured up in our mind. And here's another one. Ruth chapter 4. This is the image. You, there was a, a man and his wife and two sons that traveled, left Israel, and they had, the two sons had married two women. One was a Moabite woman. And they travel and leave and disaster strikes, tragedy happens. The woman's husband dies and her two sons die. And so it's just her and her two daughters-in-law. And she is having the worst life, it's getting close to Job. When they go back to Israel, this little girl, Ruth, one of the daughters-in-law, tells her, I'll never leave you. Where you go, I'll go. I'll worship your God. He will be my God. And where you die, I will die. This woman's committed. Absolute commitment. And while she's there, and they're having a tough life, because when they get back there, there's no husband, there's no sons. So it's, income is difficult. She, in chapter 4, has this man, Boaz, who is very well off. Boaz is wealthy, he has land, he has servants, and Boaz thinks Ruth is pretty cute. Is what we, something along those lines. Ruth is out there in the field one day and starts in, verse, or in chapter 4. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by. Now the kinsman. The whole thing is, this woman and her two daughters-in-law, their husband had some land. Her family had some land. And by Jewish law back then, in tradition, this land had to be passed down legally to, to people and families. Since the husband died, the two sons died, how are we going to get part of this land? This, the way the law was set up was a kinsman. There was a right of marriage, a legal order of authority set up where a certain kinsman, if you were closest in relation, you had the opportunity, if you wanted to, to marry this Ruth. And as you see here in the story, the first guy, that's who the kinsman is, Boaz knows that guy, he's in line first. I'm related, I, I can, Boaz, he can marry Ruth, he can take everything that she has and provide for her and her family. All of her, her goods and her bads become part of him and she doesn't have all that many goods, just a lot of debts probably. The first kinsman doesn't want to. He says he will mar his inheritance. Verse 3, He said unto the kinsman Naomi that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. That's Naomi's husband. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people, if thou wilt redeem. This is the word that keeps appearing in this chapter. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know for there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. And that word redeem, over and over. And Again, what is being pictured here? A kinsman, it uses this phrase. We don't even have it before this book. The kinsman redeemer. That means somebody that is close to you in relation. They're just like you. They share a bloodline. And they're related to you. And they have the right to do something legally for you. 
redeem, redemption. And we know this story. We know how this turns out. Boaz buys it, marries Ruth, and Ruth becomes part of a wonderful lineage. Ruth and Boaz have a baby named Obed, and Obed has a kid named Jesse, and Jesse has a kid named David. Amazing story. That woman taking from nothing, from poverty, from curse, brought into God's blessing. The word redemption, redeem. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. You see, if you, it's only in the Old Testament that it describes some of these notions, some of these word pictures. And what we just looked at with Ruth, we looked at it very quickly because of time, is the word redemption. What does it mean in the, in the New Testament? Because it talks about it a lot. And as New Testament Christians, if we're gonna understand what it means, we gotta know where this stuff came from. Galatians chapter 4. We'll start at verse 1. Now I say that the heir, he's talking about inheritance here. That's a legal term. That the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. Until that child is old enough to take responsibility for the inheritance, he's really no different than the servant. The servant's not going to inherit. But when they're both six years old, they're the same, legally. Neither has a say over the inheritance. Verse 2, But as under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. The time appointed of the Father. We're talking about inheritance, redemption, and a father that gets to decide when it happens. I hope some things are popping into your head. Verse 3, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now here's our verse. But when the fullness of the time was come. The fullness of what time? The previous verse verses mentioned a father setting up a time when inheritance would come due. He talks about himself, Paul does, and Israel. And, and of course, Christians. And in verse 4, when the fullness of the time was come, God did something. The Father did something. Now, what he's talking about here is Daniel, we're not going there, but Daniel chapter 9, 24 and 25. It has to be one of the top three passages in the Bible because it nails down exactly when the Messiah had to come walking into the earth. Exactly. Paul says when the fullness, that means when the clock was exactly right on. When the fullness of time was come, God did something. He sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. In verse 4 is your entire Bible. Not just the gospel, not just the New Testament. When the fullness of time was come, that means there's a time, and sometimes it's a lot of time, that passes, expires, keeps going and going until a certain event happens. And that's what he's talking about. There was all this time before our Christ, our Redeemer, came into this earth. And look what it says about him. He sent forth his Son, and he describes him as made of a woman. I'll play devil's advocate for just a little bit. Does that mean that 
there was a woman with some clay, and just like you make a pot, and she was designing a son. No, that's not what it means by made. The son, he was made of a woman. In this verse, and in the next two verses, there is a legal idea here. Keep your finger here. We, gotta, we, gotta, we have to dive in and discuss this. He was made of... Why is that even important? Why would Paul, why would God instruct Paul to write it this way, that he points out he was made of a woman? Go to Genesis 3. Yes, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And in verse 11, 12, 13, and a couple more after that, God is talking to Adam, Eve, and Satan. Satan has just deceived Eve. She took of the fruit. She ate it. Now God is coming, and there is this judgment. But it is amazing what takes place. In this judgment, God says something. Verse 14, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, Thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. That was Satan's judgment. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee. Who's the thee? Satan. I'll put enmity between Satan and... Why would he identify the woman? In a way, yes, there, there's, some, there's definite truth in that, and we're going to get to that. She did kind of bring this in. But how do people get into this earth? We all got here through the birth canal. That's the only way you get here, legally. Do you know why demons aren't allowed, why they weren't allowed to stay in the pigs in Jesus' time? Why he legally cast the demons out of people? They don't legally have a right to be here. God said that the earth is his and he gave it to mankind. And this is why Jesus had, to, if he was going to pay our penalty, he had to be born of a woman. Why did God not send an angel down? He could have picked Michael, Gabriel. He had, tells us how the numbers of angels, maybe one of them would have volunteered. Why not? Because they're not human flesh. You can't have an angel die in the place of sinful mankind. And because of that, as what we just read in Galatians, God sent forth his son. And what about that son? He was born of a woman. Now, he, just like he's told, we learned in John 8, he was back there talking, or up there with Abraham. He talked to Moses out of that burning bush. He was in the Old Testament a long, long time ago wasn't until he put flesh on, he was born of Mary, and this is why Joseph didn't physically have anything to do with his birth. What would have happened had Joseph's seed been in Mary to produce Jesus? Jesus would have been stained with Adam's sin. Yes. Every human being that is born, other than, other than that incarnate Christ, has man's seed and it has that original stain of sin, and there was no way that would be pure enough to put on Calvary's hill to sacrifice for our sin. No good. God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, 
You have to come into this world that way. Legally. And Jesus legally then had the right to do what? The rest of that verse says, made of a woman, comma, made under the law. What law? God's law and the, the reason Jesus kept the law of the Old Testament to show us that we had to keep it? No. We don't have to keep the ceremonial laws. We keep the moral law absolutely. Those Ten Commandments never go out of style. But we don't have to wash our hands a certain way before we eat. We don't have to wash a sacrifice before we put it on the altar. Those laws we don't follow because as Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, I have come to fulfill the law. He didn't come to destroy it. He fulfilled the requirements of it. Since he paid the legal requirements for it, you know what it would be if I tried to pay for it out of my good name now, which isn't very good? It'd call, it's called blasphemy. I would be trying to outdo what Jesus did. Can't do it. And it's blasphemous to try. You're saying his wasn't good enough. I'm, here's my lamb. I bought it. I raised it. Kept it nice and healthy. And now I'm sacrificing it and putting the blood on the altar. God doesn't want that. His son fulfilled the requirements for it. Galatians 4.4 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Made of a woman. Because back here in Genesis 3, God said, he, he tells even Satan right there. He's standing there talking to them and Eve and Satan, and he tells Satan, someday there is going to come a seed from this woman and he is going to crush your head. The seed of the woman. And you know what is interesting and we're just going to tease you with 10 seconds? There were two seeds mentioned in that verse. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What is he? We can't. We don't have the time. But think of that. When you get to Jesus' time, what do you call the Pharisees? Sometimes, you are of your father, the devil. Oh, I thought he just he just told he was just loving to people. Yeah, he was. And sometimes love tells the truth. He called those people children of the devil. There's two seeds mentioned there. Cut it. Here we go. Genesis. Um, okay, let's, before we leave Genesis 3, I want to read verse 17. And unto Adam he said, because he gave something to Satan, he gave something to Eve, and now he says, and unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. There's something contained in there that we skip over and we just don't grab. And 1 Timothy 2.14 confirms this. Jesus, or excuse me, God tells Adam that because you hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. Now, you can take things out of conversation and you can preach an entire message. Husband, never listen to your wife. That's not what that verse is saying. God is not saying, husbands, never Listen to your wives. I'm being, I'm poking a little fun here, but you could say that. That's not what he's teaching here. But there's something to learn from this. How did Adam end up losing this glorified state? The Bible tells us that Eve was deceived and Adam was not. Here's what, here's what that means. We want to be accurate about this. Eve was, from what it looks like, 
She was off by herself, and the serpent convinced her of something that, you know, God said if you eat that, you'll die, but it's not really true. If you eat it, you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. You'll become like a god. And she was deceived. She believed it. She bought into it. She took and she ate, and the Bible tells us that something happened. There was this fallen nature. The glory she was clothed with light, it's gone. And I think the state between their glorified state and where they fell to is much more than we can possibly grab, grasp, probably. So here's the thing. Adam was not there. It does tell us that later Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam and he ate. And that's all it tells us about it. But in 1 Timothy 2.14 it says, Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't. And here's, I think, the picture. Adam comes home and he sees there's something major has gone wrong. Honey, what happened? He visually probably noticed right away. She had been clothed in light. See, we realize they're, they're both naked when God comes. After they both eat, have to think something happened to Eve. He saw her in this terrible state. And you know what he did? Adam loved Eve so much, he chose to take her state. Now, when the Bible in the New Testament talks about marriage and a man loving his wife as Christ loved the church, and he gave his life for her, and it tells us that in Romans, Jesus is the second Adam. Here's the picture. Jesus in heaven, clothed in glory. He chooses to unzip, to step out, to lay his glory aside. He is still God. But he goes into human flesh to do what? To die for us. He lays down his life for, the Bible calls, his bride, the church. Anybody who becomes saved, Jew or Gentile, you lose that That distinction, you're neither one of those. You're neither a Jew nor a Gentile. If you're saved, you are now a Christian. And you're in God's church, Jesus' church. And you're the bride of Christ. It tells us he laid down his life for that. Do you see the the understanding that maybe the, the image, the accuracy you understand of what Jesus did if we understand what happened here in Genesis 3? Adam chose to be with Eve in that state. And Jesus did the same. I'm not trying to make them equal. Obviously what Jesus did, he was tortured for it. Gave his life. But there's a picture that Adam was not deceived. He knew what he was doing when he stepped down into Eve's state of being. Let's go back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. The whole Bible The whole Bible is right here in these couple verses. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman. That's because of Genesis 3.15. God told even Satan, someday somebody is coming from her or her lineage. And you know, that's why this, this bears just to stop to point this stuff out. From that moment where God tells Eve, that somebody is coming from you, what's the rest of the Bible focus on? I mean, there's tons of people in the Bible. Tons. Focuses on one lineage. 
There's all these people. In Noah's time, it narrows down to Noah because he's the only one that's going to come out on the other side of the boat. And as soon as you get with Noah, there's about 12 verses that list all the people on earth. And it only focuses on one of them. His name is Abraham. As soon as you get Abraham's name mentioned in the Bible, everybody else disappears. Esau, he was there in the lineage, but it was Jacob's turn. Isaac, he had his brother Ishmael. Ishmael gets pushed off. We don't hear much about him. Why? It's not just because Isaac, we think, is better than Ishmael. It's because of the lineage that God is focusing on to get that seed into the earth right here. He is going to be born of a woman, made of a woman, made under the law. Now that part we haven't really dug into, under the law. The reason Jesus did all these Jewish things in the New Testament Keep that law perfectly. So that when he died on the cross, there was no sin, no transgression, nothing that could be laid at God's feet saying this sacrifice isn't good enough. It's perfect. The Bible tells us it's humanly, it's not even humanly possible for a normal human being to keep the law. Can't. Jesus did that. He kept the law so that He became the lamb that took away the sin of the world. That's why his sacrifice was so overarching. That's why one drop is good enough for every human being on the planet if they accept it. Because his sacrifice was so legally perfect. That's what this is telling us. Look at verse 5. He did that. He was made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. One reason why I wanted to include this idea with a lot of these Old Testament ideas is to, for all of us to learn. The Old Testament is what gives us the definitions of just how legal this sacrifice turned out to be. As it says here, he redeemed us so that we could be adopted as sons, daughters, his children. Legal children. That's what Boaz did with Ruth. Legally adopted her. Everything. What was done for us on the cross put us in such a position of authority with our Father and in such a position of inheritance. This this whole chapter starts out with the word the idea of the inheritance. And this is how we get it. And it's why we as Christians today, we use the phrase, a born-again Christian. You are born again. The Bible says that when you accept Christ, behold, all things are new. And it really does mean all things. Everything. We have a relationship with the king of the universe now. And it's so precious, it should be imprinted on you that he sent his son to be made of a woman, to become one of them, so that it would be perfectly legal, so that he could win them back. See, this always makes me think, this is how, God's not legalistic. He doesn't do things just for the sake of, but he, he, he does follow the law. He never once pulled out a magic wand and just waved sin away. Never. He didn't do it with Adam and Eve. Sacrificed an animal right there and covered them with the coats of skins. 
He never winks at sin. Never. But he does make a way out. And he does make a way of redemption and cleansing. And the point of this is for us to see how 100% all-encompassing that redemption is. It takes care of everything. It's why the Bible paints the picture of the Israelites coming out of Egypt after they've been slaves all those hundreds of years. And it tells us later on that when they left, there wasn't one sick person, not one sick person. That they had been completely set free. They left 400 years of slavery overnight. Overnight, those, Israel, those Egyptians were left in their path. They travel a few days, they go through the Red Sea, God closes the Red Sea, destroys their past, and the Bible says they looked, turned around, and the Egyptians were washed up on the shore. With every wave, they saw their past. Those people, that guy will never come back and crack the whip. Not in my life. They'll never own me, ever. That's the picture of baptism. It's just meant as an outward sign of you go into that water and you leave everything in your past, everything behind. And when you come up, you're a new creature. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. This is why uh, we study our Bible in, in places like the book of Ruth. It's so important to understand what does, what does biblical redemption really mean. And when you get the, the picture of Ruth painted for you, how her life was completely transformed, brought into not just the kingdom of God, his family, his lineage, that Jesus would come out of her line. That's redemption. And the Bible's full of these stories. To understand what you read in the New Testament, we have to have a keen understanding. What the heck happened before that ever came? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for time we can set aside to study your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd give each one of us a boldness in our relationship with you. And we pray, Lord, that we would be strengthened and encouraged. Father, we pray over Pastor and Tiff, you give them a great week. Have them drive home safely. And we pray, Lord, that their lives would live under an open heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.